here. We're going to finish our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to go there. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 8 to 14. And I, uh, I'm i going to have to say I'm going to miss preaching out of this book, <laughs> though I know that there's other good ones out there, but I have enjoyed this. We haven't tapped into all that it has to say for sure, um, but I believe we're bringing this to a conclusion today that really wraps it all up, uh, the writer does that. So would you follow along with me as we read Ecclesiastes 12, 8 to 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Lord, there are times when you summarize things for us and you make it clear to us in a short sentence or two. And this is one of those times. And so like the point of a wedge or of an axe, Lord, would you drive home for us today this massive truth, this culmination of 12 chapters, this secret to life. And would Jesus be glorified in it? We ask in his name. Amen. If you were a student studying for a test, hypothetical situation, (laughs) it would be a great help to you if your teacher handed you a single sheet of paper and it just had a few bullet points on it and and he or she said, this is all you need to know for the test. (laughs) Uh, You would probably like that because out of all the hundreds of pages of, of notes and books that you have, you would like it to be distilled down into just this one page. This, these five things, that's all you got to know for the test. I think students would like that. Um, or to use a different illustration, suppose you bought some complicated child toy that has the instructions, some assembly required, and you open the box and there's a 50-page manual in there and 700 parts, and you go, why did I buy this thing? Um, Couldn't I just have something like Ikea does, you know, where you get five pictures, no words, 
this is all you got to do. <laughs> we want things to be simple. We want somebody to distill it down into five easy steps. We don't want it to be so complicated. We can't remember uh, what to do, especially if it's something really important. You know, medical advice or something like that. Just give me the essentials, the thing that I can hang on to so that I know what to do. Um, This passage functions like that for us. About the most important thing that any of us needs to know, which is the secret to life. The secret to happiness, if you will. The author, whom we assume to be King Solomon, he was on a quest for life. He wanted what you want, what I want. He wanted permanent happiness. He wanted to find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. So he wrote this little book called Ecclesiastes to record what he learned as he was on this quest. And now after 12 chapters, he boils it down To just one thing. Here's the secret to life, he says. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what everything's been leading up to. All the stories, all the wisdom, all the proverbs, all the things he tried, the things that he found didn't work, and so forth. It's all leading to this one conclusion. Here's what you need to know. Fear God and keep his commandments. You do that, and you're on the road to life. You're not going to end up empty and disillusioned and in despair if you do that. that that's where this whole thing's been going. That's the answer. You might wonder if anybody can really tell you the secret to life so confidently. <laughs> can this guy be trusted? <laughs> and he can be. Because this comes from God himself, who's made the way clear for us. So our passage is laid out this way. First, there's a summary. It's why I included verse 8. There's a summary of our biggest problem in life. And then after that, he gives the answer to the problem. I've given you already the peak of it, but we're going to work our way to that. And then finally, he closes with why it matters um, that you actually follow this advice. And so we'll get to that at the very end. Let's begin with the first part, our biggest problem in life. What is the biggest problem according to the preacher? Verse 8 is, my summary is that life without God is futile. Life without God is futile. Verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Those were the first words from the preacher at the beginning of the book. And now they're here again, the exact same thing. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So it's his first words, it's his last words. So they're like brackets around this whole book. That that's the big story, that's the big backdrop behind everything. That there's this tremendous vanity or emptiness or meaninglessness to everything. In our experience, in our under-the-sun world, that's the big problem is that that everything disappoints. Nothing really is solid. This word for vanity here is is breath or vapor, literally. So so think of the steam kettle, and you're boiling some water, and there's this steam coming off. And how long does that last? It's just 
it's, it's gone. And you can't get your hands around it. You can't hold on to it. You can't keep it. It's here and it's gone. That, that's what he's saying. Life is like that. It's like vapor, breath. Um, James would say centuries later, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And so is everything else. Everything at its core, if you really pursue it to its end, it's like vapor. It won't give you any kind of permanence. It won't give you a place to land, solid ground to stand on. It, it doesn't give satisfaction. It'll leave you empty. That, that's his take. That's, how the, that's the big problem in the world. And so he starts with that assertion, and he ends with it. And in between, he makes his case. And, and so you just don't take his word for it. He goes through this long list of all the stuff he's tried uh, to see if that's not really the case, to see if really there, if there's something out there that, that I could grab onto and say, now there's life, there's my happiness. And, and we've gone through that many sermons now, but let me just give you a, a quick review uh, of what he's tried to, to find some substance to get fulfillment. He's tried... Being wise instead of being foolish. And he's tried being foolish instead of being wise. Um, Ecclesiastes 1.17 I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness <laughs> and folly. Uh, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. So sometimes he stayed within the boundaries. Sometimes he was a good boy. Sometimes he followed good advice, and sometimes he pushed the envelope. Sometimes he went up to the edge to see, what's this going to do for me? And then when he looks back on both pursuits, he goes, you know what? That was a striving after wind. Neither one really worked. So he tried indulging himself in earthly pleasures. Ecclesiastes 2.1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then he goes on to list all the things that he's tried. He tried food, drink, sex, entertainment. Uh, he grew to be powerful and important. This was a guy who had servants. He also did many great works, he said. He built stuff. He got rich. He accumulated toys, lots of possessions. He had it all. But what was his verdict after all of this experiment, all of this not withholding himself any pleasure, if he, uh, Ecclesiastes 2.11, Then I considered all my hands had done, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he tried to find out, well, maybe working hard all your life, maybe that will do it for me. But that didn't satisfy. Ecclesiastes 2, 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So that didn't work. And so he also thinks about the end of life. He realizes, you know, after all that pleasure-seeking, after all that trying foolishness and wisdom and working hard and anything that I can grab my, my hands to, it all ends up the same way for everybody. You get old and you die. And that was last week's sermon, chapter 12. Man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about in the streets, and the breath is over, the, the vapor is gone. 
Vanity of vanities, he says. All is vanity. I heard a quote by another celebrity that bears this out in recent times. So some of you might know Aaron Rodgers. Okay, he plays for the Packers. Uh, I actually saw him in person, although he was like a quarter of a mile away. But I was in the same place. So he's a celebrity. Everybody wants to see him. He's making millions. And I heard a quote from him recently. He said, I've been at the bottom and I've been at the top, but peace is going to have to come from somewhere else. Like, he did it. He, he went where the, where the preacher went, and he found out the same thing. It's all vanity under the sun. If this is all that there is, if it's just humans living on planet Earth, under a sky, doing stuff, there isn't any substance there. There's no way that you'll ever be satisfied, even if you make it to the top. So people are learning that all the time. Um, and, the, and the preacher is telling it to us here. But he also, throughout the book, has been pointing in another direction every once in a while, like rays of sunlight that pierce the clouds. Every once in a while, he'll look up and he'll think about something over the sun. And he'll remember, but wait, there's a God. <laughs> and when that God comes into the picture, everything changes, like in Ecclesiastes 2.25. For apart from him... That is, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Answer, well, apart from Him, you can't. Apart from Him, it's vanity. But with Him, it's not vanity. With Him, there is enjoyment. With Him, actually, things in this world take on a different hue altogether. And he's making that case at the end of the book here also, that this God has to come to the rescue, or else there is no point. There isn't anything at the end of your life to look at and say, there's my, there's my security. God has to come to the rescue. And that's where he's going at the end here. He's saying this God has come to the rescue. And so the end of this chapter functions as the cheat sheet, if you will. Uh, the few things that you and I need to know in order to find life in this world in which there's nothing but vapor. And I'm going to break it up into three commands that he gives us. Three commands that are essential to really finding your heart's desire. That fulfillment, that satisfaction that you and I all want. Here's how you get it. He's going to tell us in three commands and the first one, I'm going to rephrase it this way. It's to trust what is written in this book. Trust what's written in this book. I get that from verse 12, where it says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. That's the command. Beware. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, for our students... That's not a commentary on your homework. Just saying. <laughs> Though it probably does describe it. <laughs> it describes your experience. When I was an engineering student, I remember sometimes we would look at this verse and we would quote this. We'd console ourselves with this verse jokingly that, yes, much studying, it, much studying is a weariness to the flesh. There is no end to the books that we have to read. Um, 
it's not really what this was intended for, but it made me feel better. Even God feels sorry for me. That's nice to know. Um, but this isn't about school exactly. This command uh, is beware of anything beyond these. What is these that he's talking about here? Well, in context, it is these words of the preacher. These words of Ecclesiastes in particular. What he's just been telling you for 12 chapters, and he's referring back to verses 9 to 11 right here. This is the these that he's saying, beware of anything besides this. Verse 9, the preacher taught the people knowledge. Uh, Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. And words, he wrote words of truth. Uh, The words of the wise, they're called, in verse 11. The collected sayings. Uh, Beware of anything beyond these things that the preacher is teaching you. Why? Because there is no end to all the other books out there. There is no end to the number of people who are writing stuff and saying, this is the way to life. This is where you're going to find happiness. This matters. There's no end. He says there's no end to that. You can study that. You can weary yourself. You can wear yourself out completely going after all the stuff that's coming out. <laughs> and that was true in a day before we had a printing press so or internet. Just think now of this has only exploded exponentially. What's out there? How many voices are saying to you, this is the way? And he's saying, beware. Beware of those other books. Don't look for a different answer there. The answer is right here. This is an exclusive claim that he's making. That what Ecclesiastes has to say, and I will argue what the whole Bible has to say, is 100% reliable as your guide for life. And nothing else is. Only these words. Beware of any other words than these. It's not to say that other books can't be helpful, but they're only helpful to the degree that they explain or they point to or they flesh out the implications of these words, this book, this thing we call the Bible. It's the only sure guide to find life. That, that's what he's saying. Trust what is written in this book. That's a bold statement, isn't it? <laughs> that's very out of step with how we're generally taught to think nowadays. Um, that sounds close-minded. That sounds arrogant. We're not supposed to claim that only one book or one person or one religion has all the answers. And yet, when it gets right down to it, lots of people do claim to have the secret to life. And that's how they sell their books. About 10, 12, 15 years ago, there was a book called The Secret. And it was a bestseller. So for 15 bucks, you could find The Secret to Life. And now you can only find that book at, you know, Goodwill. I guess it wasn't the secret. But when they're writing the book, the authors who are writing the book are saying, I know the way. I know the way. You read my book, you'll find the way to life. People do claim that they know. 
well, this book claims that. But this book says this is the only one and none others. They don't know the way. Beware, beware. There's an ultimate claim of authority here. And why is it? Why can we believe this guy and not other people? And here's why he can make this claim, this exclusive claim. It's because the preacher, the writer of this book, is not the ultimate author of it. God is the ultimate author of this book. God himself wrote Ecclesiastes for us. He used a person, but God superintended the process and made sure that exactly what he wanted to be written was written. We know that because he goes back and he says so in verse 11. He says, these sayings, they are given by one shepherd. That's an interesting title right here. He's never used that word in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. No shepherds anywhere. Whenever it refers to the preacher, he's called the preacher, (laughs) not the shepherd. He's the preacher who is the son of David, king of Israel, king in Jerusalem. Um, He's never called the shepherd, but here, all of a sudden, we have this shepherd. These sayings are from one shepherd. So, Who is that? Why this word shepherd? And I think it's because he's distinguishing this person from himself. Uh, Yes, a man wrote this. Even somebody who is, in a sense, shepherding us. But there's a shepherd who is behind this. There is a different author. There's a distinct author. Who is that shepherd? Well, David said, the Lord is my shepherd. We assume this to be King Solomon. His dad wrote that. (laughs) The Lord is my shepherd. That shepherd, God, the Lord God, is the shepherd who has collected these sayings, who has carefully laid them out, who's put it all together for us, bringing it all to a head, bringing it to this one point. God's really behind this. God's the one that says, everything is futile without me. He knows. He made us. He created us. He has the right to tell us that. And he's telling us that right here. These collected sayings are are his sayings. And it's not just Ecclesiastes. It's this whole book because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is. New Testament, Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, Genesis, Revelation. All of that is God's words, His collected sayings. All of it's given by one shepherd. And it all references, or it all reinforces, it all expands upon this message of Ecclesiastes, which is that life is only found in God our shepherd. And this shepherd who gave us these words has also come to us in the person of Jesus Christ who said, I am the good shepherd. (laughs) He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, the Father is a shepherd from eternity past and now that Father has come in the form, the Son has come in God in the flesh and he's a real shepherd that you can now see and relate to. This shepherd is the same shepherd that spoke these words. God in the flesh has come. God has come as the good shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep. 
And all of the scripture points to that as being the rescue. The, we have in Ecclesiastes the general statement saying, you can't have life without God, but there's a shepherd telling you that. And now the shepherd comes and he says, here I am. Here's the God you need. You needed somebody to come and die for you, to die for your sins, that you might be forgiven, that you might be released from bondage so that you could have new eyes to see over the sun and see the God who is there and worship him. So he's the one behind Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes isn't saying anything different than the rest of the Bible. There's no secondary gospel here. There's just the beginnings pointing to Jesus. You can't do life without God. You can't do life without Jesus, the real shepherd. Like Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.15, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This book right here, beware of anything else besides this book. This has the way of life. This will make you wise for salvation. This will point you to the one true God. That's what Ecclesiastes is telling us. That's what the whole Bible is telling us. It's an exclusive claim. It really is. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody. Beware of anybody else. Beware of any other book. That's implicit, I think. Now he goes and he talks about what then? Okay, we, we have this book. We have a big problem. There's no life without God. And we have this book, and we can rely on what it says. So what does it say? What, what's the big message from Ecclesiastes? Now, now what do I do? If I'm convinced, okay, I got a problem. God is the answer. What now? What now? And he gives us another two commands that are put together. And we're going we're gonna to spend some time on these separately. But here it is, verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. More literally, this is the whole of man. That word duty isn't really there. Um, this is the whole of man. This is what man is about. This is what life is all about. This, this is what you are created for. This is your design. The whole of man what life is all about for you, humans under the sun, is fear God and keep His commandments. That's why you're here. That, that's the way to life. That's the way to get in line with what God has created you for. That's what this dual command is all about. Let's take these commands um, one at a time. They're linked, but we can think about them separately. First, we're told to fear God. What does that mean? Fear God. Um, a good place to learn this is the example of Abraham when he was about to offer up his only son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. This comes from Genesis chapter 22. God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, of course, that command would make absolutely no sense to Abraham. Because, first of all, this is the beloved son that he loves, his only son. Why would any parent, why would God ask any parent to 
kill his own son and offer him as a burnt offering. It makes absolutely no sense on one level. Then there's also the other issue is that God promised that through Isaac, his offspring would be named. Through Isaac was going to, be, was going to come offspring that would become a mighty nation that would bless the world. And so he's got this promise from God that Isaac's going to have to live and he's going to have to have kids and you're telling me to go kill him and that seems to go exactly against your promise. But what does Abraham do? He obeys and he goes. He takes the long journey. He goes up the mountain. He lays his son on the bundles of wood. He raises the knife to slay him just because God said so. Though every fiber in his being is saying, I don't want to do this. But at the last second, God speaks to him and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The evidence that Abraham feared God is that he was willing to obey God even when every fiber in his being says, I don't want to do that. Why would he do that? Why would he, why would he obey? Was it because he was afraid that God would strike him down if he didn't do it? Is that what the fear is? Is this, I don't know what God's going to do. He's going to strike me down if I don't do this, and so I'll do it. Is that what's behind his obedience? Was it a sense of terror that God is going to say, you bad, wicked servant, let me show you who's in charge. Is, is that what this fear is? Well, there's nothing in the passage that would suggest that. In fact, the very opposite seems to be the case. Abraham had actually a positive view of God's goodness in that moment. We know that because of the writer of Hebrews. He said in Hebrews eleven nineteen of Abraham, he considered, Abraham considered, that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. As he's going up the mountain, as he's got the knife, he knows, even if I go through with this, I believe God can raise him from the dead. I believe that there's a promise that's been made, and it has to do with Isaac. So I don't know how this is going to work, but God is good, and God is going to keep his promise to me. So that's not shaking in your boots fear. There's something else going on there, and I think what we can call it is reverence. Uh, a submission to God as Lord over him with an understanding that that God is wiser than me and he knows what he's doing and he is good. And so when he asks me to do something, I will do it based on what I know about him. He took God seriously. He recognized God's right to call for obedience and he trusted that he was good. So fearing God is not shaking in your boots terrified of God, but it is to take him seriously. Recognize his authority, his wisdom, his claim on our lives, and his goodness, which is worship. Now, is there a sense also that God is not to be messed with? <laughs> yes. Yes, there is a sense that God is not to be messed with. 
The word fear is purposeful. Could have used other words. Um, And we see that in other uses of the word fear in connection with the Lord. For example, when the people of Israel crossed over the Jordan to claim their land, they set up a pile of stones on the other side of the Jordan after they walked through it on dry land and then God let the water flow again. They made this big pile of rocks that they pulled out of the river and the the Lord said to, to Joshua, if anybody asks you, what do these stones mean? You'll say to them this, the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So God is so mighty that he can part the Red Sea and he can dry up the Jordan River. He can do anything. And that helps me fear him, (laughs) to know how mighty, how powerful he really is. There is a sense in that word fear that God's not to be messed with. As C.S. Lewis said, he's not a tame lion. But the good news for the believer in Christ is that untamed lion is on your side now. (laughs) You don't need to fear his roar You don't need to fear his wrath because Christ took that for you on the cross. But nevertheless, you don't take him for granted. You don't ignore him. You bow down before him. You adjust your life to him and you recognize his power and his glory and his authority. I've probably used this illustration before, but it helps me understand what it looks like to fear God. It's like being on a mountain in Colorado above tree line when a storm comes up. I always have to have a mountain uh, illustration somewhere. Well, the storm itself is very frightful because you know, especially above tree line, that that can kill you. Lightning, wind, hail, rain, snow any combination of those things. And so what do you do when you see that coming? You find shelter. We actually had to do that in July. Um, Found some shelter above tree line as a storm was coming in. We were in between this snowbank and some rocks kind of out of the way. Um, While you're in the shelter, the storm can be fierce. It can be lightning and thunder and wind and hail and stuff all around you. But because you're in the shelter, you're safe. You know the storm's not going to touch you. But nevertheless, you don't test it. (laughs) You yield. You adjust. You recognize the power and the danger, and so you stay in your shelter. And from that safe place, you can view the power and the glory with a sort of reverence, with a sort of awe. That's a picture of being a believer in Christ. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. We find safety from God's punishment for our sins by running to Christ, who guarantees that God is for us, but we remain in awe of his power and his authority. We recognize his claim on our lives and we adjust ourselves accordingly. So to fear God is to take him seriously like you do the storm. Give him his due. And that's an act of faith and worship. And according to Ecclesiastes, this is the whole of man. This is what you're created for. If you fear God, you're on the road to life. You're on the straight road, the best road. (laughs) 
So it begs the question, do you fear God? Do you take him seriously? Have you hidden yourself from his righteous judgment by running to Christ? If so, all is not vain. All is not vanity. All is not futile. Not for you, it isn't. Not for you. Because you're, you're on the road that God has described for you. God has prepared for you. You're doing what you're called to do. You're doing what you're made to do. This is the way. Fearing God. You found the secret. And if you do fear God, you will do the second half of the command. Because it flows directly from fearing God. The whole of man, what life is all about, is to fear God and keep His commandments. Keep His commandments That's how you demonstrate that you fear God. So it was with Abraham. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. That's that's how I know you fear God. You did what I said. Obedience and genuine faith always go together. They're not to be separated. Jesus said the same thing in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them He it is who loves me. So you say, I love Jesus. I love to read the Bible. I love to go to church. You know, um, I'm all about Christ. I consider myself a Christian. That's wonderful. But it's when you actually do what Jesus says that you prove that your love is real. That you actually do what God says to do in the scriptures. That's how we know. And we have assurance from 1 John 5, 3 that His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. In fact, they lead to blessing. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. John, 7, John 13, 17. If you want to experience ultimate fulfillment, something really satisfying, if you want to live the dream, so to speak, here's how you do it. You keep God's commandments because they're for blessing. They're for you. They're good. God's will is good and acceptable and perfect, according to Romans 12. This is not going against your desire for life at all. This is actually the means that you experience it. First, you know this God who is great and who's made promises to you. He's good. And then you say, okay, you are that way, and here's what you tell me to do. Well, then that must be for my good too, and I'm going to go do that. And in the doing... You experience firsthand, real time, the blessing. And I know I know an objection to that, to what I just said, and I feel it because I want to say, well, actually, your commands sometimes seem very burdensome to me, <laughs> and I don't necessarily feel blessed when I do it. <laughs> Loving your neighbor. I find that to be very hard. Go and make disciples. That seems intimidating. Give thanks in everything. That seems unreasonable. Well, I think Abraham could have said the same thing about going to Mount Moriah with Isaac. What could feel more burdensome? What could seem less likely to bring blessing than to go and kill your beloved son. It's probably how he felt. This is hard. This is a hard road. 
but it was his fear of God. It was his awareness of God's goodness and his trust in God's promise that made it possible to go forward, even though he didn't understand what he was doing. It will be that way for us. As our healthy, faith-filled, promise-trusting fear of God increases, then our obedience will increase as well. And we'll be able to say with Jesus, or agree with Jesus, who said to weary people like us, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You will find rest for your souls. There isn't anything better that you and I can do day by day to pursue our ultimate happiness than to obey God's will, to keep His commandments, to stray from that path, to act against His will, or to ignore God altogether. That's what makes life futile. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. That feels right to us in our fallen nature, God's way seems hard. This way seems easy. I'll go that way. And he's saying that's the disease, not the cure. That's the futility. The way out of futility is I will fear God. I will worship God. And I will do what he says. And I will find life that way. This is the whole of man. This is what we're made for. And that's where we exchange fleeting vapor for something substantial and solid. Isn't it kind of God that he gives us a road map? That he doesn't leave us in the dark? That he's given us the cheat sheet? <laughs> that he's given us the simple thing with the pictures on it saying, just this, just this, just fear God and keep his commandments. <laughs> Fear the God who is the shepherd, who's come in the person of the shepherd to release you from bondage so that you can actually walk forward in faith. This is the gospel according to Ecclesiastes and according to the Bible. How good it is that God has shown us the way to escape futility. And here's why it ultimately matters. And this is the last point. Uh, there's a warning at the end saying it really does matter whether you do something with this command. It really does matter whether you fear God or not. And it's because your eternal happiness is at stake. Your eternal happiness is at stake. Verse 14 for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, what's at stake here is not just your quality of life now, but your quality of life after death. There is a judgment, he says. There, there's a reckoning. There's a verdict that God reaches on our life. Everything that you do, whether it's public or private, everything good or evil, it's going to be brought forth as evidence, and God will make a ruling that will determine the outcome of your eternal future. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 12. He strengthened it even. He said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So not just your deeds, not just your actions, your very words 
God's got them all on his roster. He knows. He knows every secret thing, every single thing. And it all will factor into his decision on your life. He will either justify you or he will condemn you. And the only way to be justified, as we know from other scriptures, is I need to have a perfect righteousness. I need to have a perfect record. I need to have every secret thing be declared okay, righteous, good. And there's no way that that can happen in our flesh. We can't do it. We've already blown it. So we've got somebody else's righteousness. We've got somebody else who every secret thing he did was right. And through faith in Christ, you get that record. And God says, eternal life, reward. I count it good. I count you good. Life. The only other option is condemnation, death, hell. That's the only other option. There is a judgment. There's, there's a, an accounting at the end. Your eternal happiness is at stake in whether or not you fear God and keep His commandments, beginning with this one, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. <laughs> it's a fact. You can live your entire life pleasure-seeking, pursuing money, power, success, without God, and you can seem to get away with it. There are people who have it all and they think, I'm doing good. I don't need anything. I'm making millions selling weed in Aurora. You can't tell me that you found the answer to life. I've got it. I've got it. You can live your whole life that way, and you can seem to get away with it. Solomon even says so. He says, there's a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. From Ecclesiastes 7.15. He knows that that's the way it looks. It doesn't look this way. It looks like you win if you get the most toys. He says sometimes it happens according to the wicked. Uh, he says there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Sometimes it seems like they're getting away with it. This life seems good. But there's a judgment. There's actually something beyond this life. And are you ready for that? Because if you really, really want permanent happiness, you're not going to get it if you don't fear God and keep His commandments. For a while, you might think you're doing well, but you're going to end up in the same place as what I'm saying here. You're going to say vanity. It was all vanity. Find that out before it's too late. First, find out that you need God and escape the vanity. And in this life, you might end up looking like you're really losing. You're really the loser. You're not the winner. In this life, that can be that way. But it's not just this life that we have to worry about. There is a judgment. There's something after death. And that's where it really is going to be joy or sorrow. Eternal joy, eternal sorrow. Which one do you want? We all want eternal. We all want it to last forever. There's no way to get that apart from God. The way is broad that leads to destruction. That road is easy. The road is narrow that leads to life. That road is hard. It's just counter to what we think. But the end of the road is what matters. <laughs> and for the believer in Jesus, that's a good road. That's a good ending. That's what we really want. Life forevermore.
God's promised it to you, believers. It's in the bank. (laughs) We have that to look forward to. And because we have that, it allows us to enjoy what He gives us in this life with open hands. We don't have to have it. It's not our life. We've got something better. May all of us take this to heart. May the Spirit show us more of God's glory in Christ so that we can fear Him and look forward to the everlasting release from vanity. Let's pray. There are things hard to understand in your word, Lord. But then you make some things very simple, very direct. We know enough. We know enough to be saved. Fear God. Fear the God who has shown himself to us in Jesus. Keep his commandments. This is the best way now and the best way for forever. So, Lord, help us to do that with anticipation, with joy, with the Abraham kind of faith that we know that even if this thing we're about to do looks hard, you're able to make good out of that. You're able to weave that into your plan. You have something good there. Help us to move forward with that anticipation. In Jesus' name, amen.